Amen. And next Sunday night, Lord willing, we're doing bonfire service. So uh, it's getting cool enough. We won't need to really sit around the fire too much next Sunday night. It's supposed to be warming up again this week, but um, we'll, we'll do that. Look, been looking forward to it. Austin almost lost his role there. We didn't have a place to have a bonfire for a while. So, um, amen. I, I, I'm, I'm thankful for all that the Lord's doing in our lives. Amen. I want you to uh, look at, uh, I gotta get, get to the right spot here. Um, I want you to look in the book of Micah. The book of Micah. I don't take a lot of texts out of the Old Testament. I'm, I'm chip off the old block in, in that sense. But Micah, the sixth chapter, it's a verse. This is a, it's a very familiar passage of Scripture to me um, because I, I quote this to the Lord in my prayers um, that He would help me to do this daily. And so this, this passage of scripture is dear to my heart. And um, I, I was just preparing. I have some other things that I've been thinking about, things that I thought I might would, would speak on and begin to move in that direction. And the Lord just, just really prompted my heart to share something simple, something that you all probably have heard me say, Dad say, maybe even many others share from here at different times. But something that I feel is, is fresh, and I feel like the Lord wants to speak it to us again today. So Micah, the sixth chapter, and in the sixth verse, and this chapter is a, is a really, uh, it's an amazing chapter, if, if you kind of take it as a whole, but for the sake of time, we're just going to focus on these three verses right here, but uh, pretty powerful thought, but it says, uh, wherewith shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before the high God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves of a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath shown thee, O man... What is good? And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Lord, I ask you that you would help me to deliver what you have put in my heart. I pray that our hearts and our ears would be ready to receive from your word, God, and that we would be strengthened and we would grow thereby. And we give you the praise, Jesus, and everybody say amen. Was thinking... I don't know of a more overused and underapplied phrase in all of Christianity than this. I'm just seeking the Lord's will about fill in the blank. I believe it to be probably one of the most uh, heard phrases that I have ever heard in my life concerning anything to do with church. I am seeking the Lord's will about this. How many of you have said that? Now you're all going... Oh, I don't want to raise my hand because then I'm, he's going to be preaching at me. Well, I'm preaching at you anyway. So I'm just seeking the Lord's will about X, Y, or Z. We act as though the will of the Lord for our lives is virtually unknowable to us and can only be found by us through intense private devotion. This is, I believe, to be 
one of the biggest lies that is happening in the church today. It is this idea of personal, and now we, we believe we must have personal relationship with Christ. We need to know the Lord on a personal level. We don't get in because we join Echoes of Calvary. That, that isn't going to get us in. You can't get baptized into it in the apostolic church. You can't get baptized into it in the missionary Baptist church. It's not because you're born in a certain family. But this idea of personal relationship that takes us outside of the body of Christ and places us into this independent, will-seeking relationship with God. I have seen more people get messed up seeking the will of the Lord than not. I've seen a lot more people get messed up seeking the will of the Lord than not. It's far better for us, and I know I, I love to say things that make you think, but it's far better for us to not seek the will of the Lord and to be going along with the flow of Christianity than to get this independent counsel thing where we're over here trying to figure out what God is saying to me and it doesn't apply to anybody else. I was thinking about it this week because we are approaching, Carrie and I, now it's, it's next month, but we are approaching two years ago that we moved here. And we got here the week of Thanksgiving two years ago. And I was thinking about it this week, how that when we prepared, everybody would have been saying at that point, if somebody said, are, are you moving to Oklahoma? Everybody would have been saying, I'm just seeking the will of the Lord about it. Everybody would have said that, right? Now, I want to raise the hands here. How many of you heard an audible voice from the Lord telling you to move to Oklahoma? Jacob is the only guy, and he's lying. It's the, it's the uh, stem cell transplant thing. Yeah. None of us, not a single person heard an audible voice. Not a single person got an email from God with instructions on where to move, how to move, what jobs to take, what jobs not to take, what houses to buy, where to put our kids, what to do with... None of us got any specific direction. Am I correct? Yet, we were constantly saying, I am seeking the will of the Lord for my life. Now, something that, that is triggering in my mind more recently is this thought that what we're really wanting often when we're asking for the will of the Lord is we are saying, God, I want you to show me what I... How many prayed that? I want you to show me what I need to be doing, Right? I need to see it. But the scripture says, we walk by faith and not by. So if we're really walking in a faith relationship with God, then we're having to take steps that we can't see the outcome. We're having to walk in areas that we can't, we don't have the ability to know what lies ahead. And what happened, at least in my life, and I, I think that probably many of you, in fact, maybe we need to answer Heather's call a year later to write about what caused us to move and, and all of that, that we all neglected to do. Certainly I did. But what happened in my life is that I realized that I was being challenged in my faith. That's what was happening. That I was being challenged to make a decision about what I believed the Lord was leading me to do and, and rightness, and I could not see any visible, uh, tangible 
yes, the Lord opened doors, and obviously we, we, we had, all have stories of that happening in our lives as we moved. But I would say that most of that, if not every single bit of that, was the result of steps that we had taken in faith toward God. And then as we stepped toward God in faith, that God answered all of these things that seemed in limbo. That was far more the experience. And while I'm speaking in generalities, maybe there's a specific, but we don't, you know, we don't preach on the, on the specifics. We're looking at the rule. And the rule is this, that we act as though the will of God is unknowable to us. And the only way we can find the will of God is to get in this prayer closet in intense, deep, private prayer. And we get over there and we, and we really ask God for his will. But in all of my years and in my experience and people I know in ministry, I don't know of this happening very often, if ever. I'm not saying it can't, and I'm not saying it won't, but very rarely. So then that leaves us in a position where we are either unable to find the will of God, and God is not making it known to us, and only every once in a while do we ever know what God's will is. Or two, God has already made his will known to us and we're just not listening. It's kind of where it leaves us. God has given some very specific things. And he's told us and instructed us in some very specific ways. But it seems as though those things fade in our, in our priority. And, and we don't really want to deal with those little things that God says we are to do. Because we're trying to, to ask God to tell us the big things that he's not telling us to do. He's worried about us getting right in the little things. And we're worried about him getting the big things right. And we have cart before horse and we walk outside of the will of God. Because we're not doing what he's already instructed us to do. Everybody following what I'm saying? So I've discovered... That through the 27 years that I have been ministering, which now seems like a long time, I didn't even think about pastor appreciation. I'm going to say some things that might sound self-serving today, but I, I don't intend them to be that way. As I said, and, and I know, I, I want you to understand what I was meaning to. Let me, let me clarify. When Lucas told me that, he said, pastor, and I said, man, call me Rodney. I mean, I, I work with those guys. I'm pouring concrete. I'm not pastor pouring concrete. I'm Rodney pouring concrete, but I'm walking in their church. I, I understand the, the, the honor, and we, and we should honor people in our lives. But you know what? I, I, calling Pastor Rod pastor and then not listening to anything he says really isn't an honor. I, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just not. I mean, pastor means a shepherd, and if I'm not listening to the shepherd, again, not God, but in, in this idea of shepherding, if I'm not listening, then calling him pastor is really slapping him in the face. It really doesn't mean anything. So really, it's a, it's, a, it's a case of honor. It's a case of relationship. But uh, not, not intending to sell, sound self-serving here. But there are some things, there are some details in our life that, that are important, that God does work out. And, and sometimes we need specific answers for specific things. Amen? We do need that at times. But I've discovered in the 27 years now that I have been ministering, that most often... The people that say, I am seeking the will of the Lord. It is actually most often used by people who, in fact, are not seeking the will of the Lord. It's most often used as an excuse to not respond in faith. An excuse 
to not respond to words that are clearly given by God to us that do directly apply to us in situation. And we circumvent those things by this grandiose statement of, I'm just trying to find the will of God. And then we look at Abraham, and the scripture says, And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. He is the father of the faith because he walked in places he did not even know because he heard the voice of God telling him to do it. We have a much better relationship with God than Abraham ever could have because we have his word already given to us, yet we act as, like, as though we don't know the will of God. And Abraham, in fact, didn't know the will of God, but he's just responding, we've been given the will of God and we're ignoring. That's kind of how this works. So God says, and let me just try to make it clear what we just read. My will is not a secret for you. I don't believe that God's desire for us is to keep us in the dark on how he wants us to live our life. Everybody say amen. I believe that it's God's good pleasure to direct his people. In fact, the scripture says the steps of an upright man are ordered of the Lord. So I've got to believe then that God, God's will for my life is available for me to hear. His will for me is in front of me. It's accessible to me. It's not a mystery. My will is not a secret to you. That would be what the Lord would be saying. But I want you to bring me things specifically. I don't want you to bring me offerings to cover up your lack of doing what I'm telling you to do. This is exactly God's problem with Israel. All of these, all of these years, you read through the, the hundreds of years of Old Testament history, and God's, God's problem, his accusation, in fact, this is God's accusation against Israel in this chapter. You can read all through the prophets. You can see it uh, over and over again, that God's issue with Israel is that they do not want to do what he has commanded them to do, but instead... They want to do what can cover up their lack of obedience. So they want to be obedient in a few things, but we've talked about this a lot of times. It's a lot easier, it'd be a whole lot easier for every one of us here if we could just go out and live our lives and then bring a dove to church with you, which we will sacrifice at this altar. It'd be a lot easier. That's way, way easier than stepping back and saying, Lord, I'm going to follow you in my everyday experience with my wife, with my children, with my friends, with my coworkers, with my, with my experiences in my home, with things that I'm seeing, with things that I'm not seeing. With all of this, Lord, I'm going to respond to you. That's way more difficult than just bringing sacrifice. And this is where Israel was. Israel did not want to obey God in anything except sacrifice. So this is where God says to them, but obedience is better than sacrifice and to hearken or to respond to my word is better than the fat of rams. All that was there for was to, was to be a type of what was coming in Christ, something that would remove sin. It was never intended for it to be the place that we live in. That is a grace, and we've tried to live in that same grace in the New Testament. We want to walk in a way that we do not have to respond to the will of God, but yet then we can bring to Him some offering, something, whether it's tithe, whether it's worship, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, 
But we can bring to him something that covers our lack of obedience to his word. And this is not the relationship God wants to have with his people. Amen? So he's, you know, we, we say, I want to bring... I want to bring to you offerings. And God says, I don't want you to bring to me offerings of thousands of rams and calves. I don't want you to bring to me burnt offerings. I do not desire your offerings and your sacrifices. But I want you to follow me. We say, well, I I want to bring you oil. And we know that oil always represents anointing. So I'm going to bring you some anointed thing. I'm going to, I, I, I'm going to bring you this, this beautiful praise that I have to offer you. It's an anointed thing, God. And I'm going to bring this to you. And he says, I don't want ten thousands of rivers of oil. I don't want it. I'm not interested in it. It's a, it's, in fact, he, he says of a burnt offering, he says, it's a putrid odor unto me. It does not suffice me. It does not make me pleased. And so he doesn't care about our anointed gifts. I'm going to talk about the anointing that's on me or the anointing that's on my family. God's not interested in your anointing. And we want to present our children. Let's let's do this. Let's come and let's dedicate our children to the Lord. Let's offer our firstborn. This is what they're doing to Moloch. They're literally sacrificing their babies. But we can kind of put that in the New Testament. So we don't really have to listen to what God says. But we come and we present our children. And we say, Lord, we're dedicating them to you. Look, they're yours. Just like Hannah and and Samuel. And here he is. Okay, he's yours. And then I get to go off and do my own thing again. Again, God says, I'm not interested. I don't want your firstborn. I don't want your anointing. I don't want your burnt offerings. I don't want any of this. So God says, listen, I'm going to tell you very clearly what I want from your life. So now we get it right up close to home. Like dad says, don't get mad at the mailman. I'm just trying to get it up as close to the door as I can. So when you open that door, that paper's sitting right there and you can read it. First thing, to do justice. Justice means to weigh things on an honest scale. This is what the word would more or less mean. To use the same balance for everyone. How convoluted has this become in the church today? To do justice does not mean social justice. To do justice does not mean to stand up for social injustices. In fact, it is not that at all. That's the opposite. It does not mean saying black lives matter. Hopefully they kick us off Facebook for this. I lost some good friends over this. I lost some good Christian friends because we would not as a church get up and say black lives matter. Every life matters to the Lord. We do not get to tip the scales on the favor and the side of things that we want in order for us to be in justice with people. We want to have justice and so we tip the scales and we love certain ethnicities but we hate white people and God is supposed to be pleased by this? It's injustice. The true weight, the honest weight of things would mean that I'm going to judge a situation and it does not matter what ethnicity you are, the judgment would be exactly the same. 
It cannot be weighed one way or the other based upon your heritage, based upon your father and mother, based upon the fact that your father was an evil person and so, well, well, we weigh it harder on you. No, no. God's justice is an honest weight and he is weighing everybody on that same scale. But the church has decided to put more weight on certain things that we have deemed injustices and this is creeping all over churches of America. It is not justice. It does not mean doing Black History Month. Now listen, I know we don't have any black people in the church, but it's not because we don't want black people to come here. Herman stayed in California with us, and they told us he messed up the ratio. He messed it up. We, we had one black guy, and he messed it up. And I would tell him, too, he'd sit at the back and say, Herman, people are going to walk in and get the wrong idea. Listen, we, we happen to just be close and, and this is the group that we got but god bring in whoever he wants but I, we're not getting up and doing black history month but we're also not getting up and doing asian history month or white history month or mexican history month it's injustice it is unjust to weigh the accomplishments of people based upon their race it's unjust in god's eyes but we've been duped in we've been suckered in the truth is that God's justice prevents me from loving, judging, or honoring someone based upon whether they are black, white, brown, or polka dot. He prevents me from it. His justice says I have to use the same weights for everybody who I encounter in my life. It does not, justice does not mean to sympathize with, honor, or affirm lesbian and homosexual life, which God calls an abomination. If you call it anything less than that, it is injustice. We have to look at things. God says, this is just the first one. God says, listen here, this is my will for you, O oh men and women, to do justice. So then the way God judges things, we must judge things. So when God looks at homosexuality and he says, it is an abomination to me. In fact, he instructs, now we, we mean no harm toward anyone. We, we incite no violence toward anyone. But in the Old Testament, he literally tells them to wipe out the tribe of Benjamin completely because they are practicing homosexuality. God destroys Sodom because of, of the pedophilia and the homosexuality that's going on in that culture. Yet we, while we're not advocating any violence toward anyone, we have a difficulty even saying it's wrong. We're worried. And I don't know. And if I say, you know, I don't, I don't agree with homosexuality, I might get fired. I might need to get fired. We might need to get fired. These are things that God says, we've got, to, we've got to put it on God's scale and see how God sees things. Justice means I cannot use weight to judge things differently than what God says they are. God's justice also means that I've got to protect the innocence and the purity of our children rather than to affirm the delusion of a man who thinks he's a woman. That's God's justice. God's justice says I've got to protect the sanctity and the order of God's design over the woke, uh, affirming culture that we live in. 
That's the truth of God's justice. God's justice also does not mean loving sinners and hating saints. It's not God's justice. It's everybody else's justice. Dad and I talk about this. We laugh about this now. A little aggravated more at the time. We went to a softball tournament before Mandy and Brandon were married. Mandy still got a scar on her knee from that softball tournament. And uh, we went to the softball tournament. We got down there and they had brought in a ringer team. And if you have played softball, that means a bunch of people who are not going to their church, but are tournament softball players. And they brought them in because they wanted to win the church tournament that we were going to. But what was worse than this is that they brought in bats that literally, if you hit somebody with them, you can be charged with a felony because they have been shaved down to where the ball comes off the bat much faster than what normally it would. And so it is very dangerous. I thought Morgan's head was going to get knocked off by one of these balls. Absolutely screaming off of the bat. And when we objected, the pastors who ran the tournament had a problem with our objection because these people were sinners and they didn't want to offend them. This was literally something that happened to us. And it's just a microcosm of what's going on in the church today. A bunch of rank people who are cheating. One, they're not a part of the church. Two, they're playing with equipment that nobody else is playing with. And we're afraid to stand up and say, you're not going to do that in the church tournament because we don't want to hurt the sinner. That's what's going on. That's where we're at. We're afraid to preach a gospel that would ruffle the feathers of anybody who listens. Not here. That's why we have 60 people here, not 600. We're afraid to preach a gospel. The modern church has failed here more than anywhere. People are so long-suffering. Christians are so long-suffering they clamor for love and forgiveness for perverts. They have all sorts of patience with troublemakers. They demand long-suffering for sinners and heretics. But you let somebody in the church say one thing they don't like and just see what happens. All of the long-suffering, all of the love, all of the mercy gone out the door. Why? Because we're weighing things wrong. We're putting more emphasis on somebody who does not know us, does not love us, is not committed to us. We're putting more emphasis on how their feelings might feel than that we would invest into people who do love us, are committed to us, and support us. It's vital that we figure this out. People feel vindicated to hold hatred and bitterness and judgment of those in church because they bring a whole lot of burnt offerings when they come to church the next week. Feel vindicated in our inability to get along. Now, we, we, a lot of this departed from us, frankly. But it was something that was a consistent and regular issue. And feel vindicated in our, in our lack of commitment and connection because we've got a lot of anointing that we're bringing to the table. Rivers, ten thousands of rivers of anointing oil. All kinds of offerings. And our children are dedicated. And God says, but you've left off of the weightier matters. 
You left off of love. You left off of justice. You left off of mercy. So God tells us to love our neighbor, to love our brothers, to love our spouses, to love our pastors. But when we, when, when we, when we look at this, I so often it just seems like people kind of, kind of go of the way of, well, I don't really want to do those things, so instead I'm going to offer you a love offering to the sinner. When in fact God is not pleased by this, it's injustice. It's against God's system. Let me pull the stump here for a second. Hook up to it, chain up to it, put her in four-wheel low. If God tells us to honor those in the body and to give double honor to those who are laboring in ministry to us. See, I didn't know we were doing pastor. I forgot pastor appreciation month, frankly. So this is self-serving, right? Okay, listen though. This is the truth. I don't care whether you go here or whatever church you go to. This would be the truth. I'll go preach this to somebody else's church. If God tells us to honor those in the body, to esteem others as better than ourselves, to give abundant honor to those whom we seem to, who we deem to be less honorable, this doesn't even give us a, an out. We're looking for the out. That actually says, well, the more you think that person's not worthy of honoring, the more you have to honor them. That's how God sees it. And to give double honor to those who labor in ministering to us. And instead, we bite and devour, and we badmouth and belittle. It's a vile, foul spirit, and God will reject any offering from such a person. He's not receiving any other offerings. I want, I, but God, I've got an offering to bring. But, but no, you can't be a part of that and bring me an offering. It's injustice. I know this would never happen here, but this is just in case Judas were to ever try to show back up. Dad said he, he, might, he might disappear, but his coat's still hanging on the back wall. So this leads us into the second thing, giving mercy. God doesn't just tell us here to be merciful. You notice that it says, this is my will for you, O man, that you would do justice. You're practicing doing justice. But he doesn't just tell us to be merciful, but he says you need to love it. That's even more difficult than just showing mercy. What's more difficult than showing mercy is loving mercy. Loving mercy is not easy. Because in order for there to be mercy, there must needs be an offense that is worthy of judgment or punishment. Everybody say amen. In order for there to be mercy shown, there needs to be a position where there must be a need for mercy. In other words, if we have not been wronged, then we cannot show mercy. So unless somebody falsely accuses me, how could I show mercy toward them for their false accusation? You understand what I'm saying? And God doesn't just instruct us here that we should do mercy, but that we should love mercy. And it reminds me of that that. A beatitude that I would rather forget because I don't even know how to practice it, but it says, bless those who curse you. You all pretty good at that? I'm not. I'm not good at blessing people who curse me. I'm good at blessing people who bless me. I'm not good at, at praying for those who despitefully use me. I'm good at praying for those who honor me. So all you, well, we honored. Okay, I'll remember all you in prayer tomorrow. That's easy. But come up and curse me out after church. I'm probably not going to be thinking about praying for you tomorrow morning. Well, if it is, I'm probably praying God's judgment rain down upon you. I don't know. 
It's not an easy thing for us. But we, like, like I said, I want you to think about this. this we want to deal with the way, the bigger things, the things that are more important. And God says, listen, I'm going to lay this out for you because this is what I'm concerned with. You're concerned with all of these details that seem to be important to you, but you've left off the things that are important to me. Justice. Loving mercy. I can't show mercy if I've never been wronged. I can't show mercy if I've never been falsely accused. I can't show mercy if I've never been attacked. So God instructs us to love being merciful. But I hate being falsely accused. I hate being wronged. But when I am justified in my judgment against a brother or sister, and instead I show mercy, this is what pleases God. And I got zero amens right there. When I am justified in my judgment. There are times where I can sit back and I can judge something completely rightly. And I have every right to view it the way I'm viewing it. I have every right to answer it. And the, the reason I'm dealing with this is because this is the part that's harder. It's not hard to go ask for forgiveness when you've done something wrong. That's the easier part. What's harder to do is forgive when you've been wronged. But it pleases God. You deal with it however you want. I'm just telling you what he says to Micah and what he says to Israel. Every right and justification for judgment that we could make toward our brother or sister could and should be made by God toward us. But God loves to show mercy. That's why every one of us is sitting in this place today. It is because of the mercy of God that we are here. It is not because we got it figured out one day. It's not because I turned my life around. It's not because I am so good or I came from a good home or I was raised in church. It is by the mercy of God that I stand here before you today and that every one of you sit here tonight or this afternoon. And so likewise, we then should be looking around and saying, how can I show this mercy that God has shown to me, to people around me, so that they can see his mercy. And I begin to think about this a few weeks ago in terms that, that, that really stick out to me. And I thought about this. How will my children ever know what mercy looks like if I never show them mercy? Any of you ever have a kid who deserved to die? But sometimes, and I'm not saying we don't correct because the same thing is true. There's, there's plenty, and, and Dad and I have talked about this many times. There's ample opportunity for us to, to judge things. In fact, uh, uh, Titus says if, if you've got somebody who's a heretic, which heretic just means causing division. That's all it means. It doesn't mean preaching false doctrine. It means a division causer. And you've warned that person twice, kick them out. That's what it says. Mercy is something altogether different. I'm not suggesting there's not a time for judgment. I'm not saying that you don't need to spank your kids because you do need to spank your kids. And if all you do is ever show mercy when they need to be spanked, you're going to raise a rotten child. But at the same time, there are opportunities where you can say, yes, you deserve this, but I'm going to give you this instead because this is mercy and this is what God's mercy is toward us. And if you don't ever show that, it's likely your children will never know that. 
And if you bite and devour in front of your children every time somebody does something to you that you don't appreciate, then your children are not going to know what mercy is. We're the living example of it. And we expect them, we wonder why children have a difficulty believing that God could have mercy toward them when we have mercy toward no one. And then we wonder why they struggle with the idea that God would be merciful. Are we not the living examples of Christ? Are we not the Christ? We, we believe this in the world. We say, listen, you're the only Jesus that people are going to see. You ever hear that? But somehow we, we can neglect that within our own families, our own homes, our own churches. If we don't exercise mercy, if we don't, if we don't take the opportunities that we have to show mercy, then we miss what God is pleased by. And lastly, it says to walk humbly with our God, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. All of the sin in the world is contained in this. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Some of you people who have a few years under your belt, nearing 40, let's say, or even older. How many of you, and maybe this is not true, but you might give me a nod, because I feel like it's more true in my life. As I've walked with the Lord, and as I've grown how many of you have maybe experienced that the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes don't seem to be as difficult to conquer as they once were? How many of you have noticed that the pride of life is more difficult now to conquer than it ever was before? It's like we, we, we kind of get beyond all of that flash in the pan and all the, all the difficulties of, of man, you know, I'm young and you've got all these hormones and things going on in our lives. Men and women, young boys and girls, and they're trying to figure things out. And that just seems like that's, a, that's an issue for some young men who, who struggle with uh, pornography or whatever else. And, and it's like, oh, that's an issue I don't think I could ever overcome. But then somewhere down the line, obviously the Lord can bring healing. But as that fades, I, I've, I've discovered something. That those things fade and pride rises up. But the problem is we don't see pride as a threat. We, see the, we saw those things as a threat. We can see the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes as a threat. But what we don't understand is, is, the, is the very threat that pride is to our lives. I remember old brother Colbert, little, little black man, stood about that tall, I think. I, I think Kerry would have towered over him. I, I don't know how tall he really was. But from my remembrance, I, I was a little guy. And he'd come in, I remember him preaching, and he'd preach pride. P-R-I-D-E, pride. And he preached about, well, you know what? I think that that's probably an applicable subject that we as adult Christians really need to figure out. At 18, we can look at our children and say, man, that one's full of pride. They think they got the world by the tail. Anybody was 18 and did that, we know. And we can look at them and we can recognize it. Oh, man, they just, oh, they think they got it figured out. But we get about 40 and we think we got it figured out, but nobody can talk to us. Nobody can input into us because we've got it all figured out. To walk humbly. We tend to think that because we have been around a little while. <laughs> I was thinking about this because I was going to use the same example. <laughs> uh, Lindsay Pepper, she got up and she was leading worship the other night at their church. And, and she said, Farmers has that commercial. And Farmers says, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Everybody seen those commercials? And that's kind of where we get in, in our lives. We can get pretty haughty about things because... Yeah, you know, when I was young, I might have took some counsel from someone, but 
I've seen a thing or two now, and I, my counsel's pretty good. I really don't need a whole lot of input in my life as I get older. Now, this is probably true on every front, except for when it comes to the things of the Lord. It is true that you know how to tie your shoes. You know how to get up and, and clean your own hind end. You know, little Rodney, he didn't know how to do that, but he's going to learn. You know how to make yourself breakfast. You know how to get showered and cleaned up and get to work and get back. You know how to all these things you know how to do. But when it comes to the things of the Lord, we never get to a point where we don't need input in our lives. Ever. Ever. But we think we do. I think the greatest danger for us is not year five in our relationship with the Lord. I think the biggest danger for us is year 25. Once we've lived a thing or two and we've seen a thing or two. And listen, again, self-serving, I know. But we think, you know what? Pastor doesn't have any right to speak to that because I know I've been there and I've seen it too. And well, I don't, I don't want to do the man of God syndrome. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of people being honored only because, I, and I appreciate what was said about pastor today because this is true. It's the years of, of investing that is being honored. It's not the position that's being honored. It's the investment. We honor people who invest in our lives. I'm tired of the man of God thing. But we tend to think because we've seen a thing or two, we've been through a thing or two, that we know just as much as anyone else, and so it causes us to reject teaching, to refuse direction, and to despise leadership. This is the result of it. So, I'm not talking because I'm a pastor. Take that title off of me and just listen. I'm reminding us of this truth, that God is the one who established apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It was not me. You can hate me. You can hate the idea of ministry, but it is God who established it, not me. So when we reject God's design, don't wonder why he rejects our gallons of anointing oil. Don't wonder. Because they don't, they don't amount to anything. I don't even think about that term. Tens of thousands of rivers of oil. It's a lot. And it doesn't amount to anything with God. No church holds all truth. No church alone by itself is the only right one. We know that. We don't believe that we're the only right one. But I do believe that we have some right here. I think we're trying to teach the truth. We're trying to reveal Christ. And certainly there's a lot of other churches. But this applies to everyone this applies to everyone in, in this building today, and this applies to you, whether you live in Arizona, or whether you're, you're going to church in Tulsa, or whether you're back in California, or in Tennessee. This applies to everyone. If you cannot honor, love, and respect the pastors in your church, then you need to leave and go find a church where you can. Have to. The issue that you're going to find is that when you find another church, you will discover that the same problem that you had with the last pastor will eventually be the same problem that you have with the next one. Your pride. That's the issue. That's always the issue. I've been talking to Carrie about this, and I don't know if she's totally convinced. I'm not ready to totally preach it yet. But I am starting to believe more and more 
that the vast majority, if not almost every one of the issues in our life are the result of our pride. Our inability to allow any other input, our inability to be redirected. Listen, if I can get my pride out of the way, then I've got a lot of brothers that are standing in this place to to help me. Should I start walking off the path? Somebody come along and say, hey, brother, man, I, I don't know. That looks like that's a bad road out, bridge out, fall off a cliff, road ahead. You might think about coming back. But if I have no input in my life, then I am walking solo. I'm living on my own. I'm doing my own thing. And I've thought about this. I've said this many times and I will repeat it again today. You need to have five people in your life that can tell you no. Five. If you do not have five people in your life that will tell you no, then you need to find new friends. It's not going to work. And, and if you're a wife and one of them is not your husband, you've got a problem you got a problem. Because this is the order of the Lord. I have got to set some boundaries and some direction and some course for my home. And if I can't look at Carrie and say, Carrie, we have to go this direction, we're going to have some problems. Men, if you don't have five men that you can come up alongside of you and say, listen, that's wrong. You're wrong here. No, this, we're not talking about man of God syndrome, somebody correcting you and it's telling you when to take vacations and what jobs to work and whether you're tired. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about men who love you and are invested in you and will say, listen, brother, man, you, we, we got to think about that. If you don't have that, then you're walking by yourself. What we tend to do is rather than find people that will tell us no, we tend to find people who will tell us yes. And that's why the busybody goes from one person to the next person to the next person to the next person because they keep getting no and they're just trying to find somebody who will say yes. We need people, men and women, godly men and women in our lives. Humility, though, does not mean, and I'm I'm finishing, it does not mean sheepish and cowardly. That's not humility. It does not mean you must accept everything because the preacher is a man of God. Well, because Pastor Rodney, you got to just whatever he says today, you got to take it. No, no, that's not humility. It's actually not humility. Humility just means to be teachable. But let me give you a couple examples. Humility means I'm eager to learn. It doesn't mean that I just, I, I'm a... I'm a naive puppet who everything I hear, I just regurgitate and, and I believe everything that I read. That is, that's not humility. It means I'm eager to learn. I'm wanting to love and I'm longing to work alongside those who are leaders in my life. Alongside those who are, who are people of impact in my life. That's all that it means. Humility means that I respect the years of toil of men who have ran point to clear a path for me and my family to see Jesus. That's what humility means. It does not mean you don't have an opinion. It does not mean you don't have a right to your opinion. It does not mean you don't lead within your home as you believe is right. You should. It does not mean you don't have conviction about things and and you walk in those areas that you believe you should walk in. But it means I'm eager to learn. I'm longing to have someone who can stand with me and help and encourage me. One of the things that has transpired, and I know it must have happened in my dad's life, but it is a bit terrifying to me, quite frankly, is the thought that every single time I have a need in my life, 
The very first person I call is my dad. Heather's nodding her head because that's true. It's probably true of Chris too. And it's probably true of Dustin too. Maybe true of more. But Every single time I have some big thing that, man, I don't know what to do. I get a little, I don't, I don't know, how do, how do I deal with this with my kids? I don't know. I mean, what do I do here? And I call dad. And what is terrifying to me is that there's going to be a point where he is not there and I've got to make those decisions by myself. Everybody's clamoring to get out on your own. That's what you do when you're 18. Well, I can't wait to get out from under the thumb of my mom and dad so they can stop telling me what to do. And, and you'd think when I get to 40, I, now I'm going, man, I wish mom and dad would tell me what to do. Anybody else there? Boy, I wish, <laughs> I wish somebody would come along and tell me how to deal with this. Because this is tough. This is difficult. And what I found out the time now is I'll call dad up and I'll say, man, dad, I don't know. What do you think I should do? Well, whatever you think's right. Thank you. I, I feel so much better after that counsel. But I understand there's going to be a time where he's gone and I've got, should the Lord tarry, I've got to stand in that position that is scaring the willies out of me. Because I, I long to have people in my life that can input into who I am, that can help me develop into the man that, I, that God wants me to be. I don't count that, I, I don't take that lightly. And I appreciate that I have so much of that. I, I'll share this and I'll be done. I preached a conference. The guys were there. And I, I preached about being measured and leveled back in Pennsylvania. And I had little measuring tapes. And I handed them out to, well, my dad already knew, and just talking about being, being measured, being leveled by somebody else, making sure that I'm walking where I should be walking. And you guys will remember, I handed them out to five or six men that were sitting in that congregation, men that I respected, men that we had been, begun to make um, relationship with, men that were pastors and men that I felt that um, I, I would want them to encourage me. Do you know how many of those men have ever called me one time? Zero. I gave the opportunity to have people outside of my little sphere influence and input and encourage and instruct my life. And I had zero investment. That's a sad thing. But it makes me appreciate the men that are here that do that in my life. So we don't take it for granted. I don't take it lightly. I don't take it lightly that I can trust our children are safe. I don't take it lightly that in 27 years we've never had any of our children molested in the ch children's church. I don't take it lightly. I don't take it lightly that in 27 years we've not had any ministry men run out on their wives. I don't take it lightly. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for men that can, that can pour into my life that are examples of godliness. And we have all that same thing for men and women, and I'm grateful for that. And I know everybody's here, Dan and Deborah, guests, but everybody else is pretty much home folk. I, I'm not trying to talk anybody up. We're all brothers and sisters. But what I am saying is we need to open ourselves and allow for the input of God in our lives through the men and women that he has placed in our lives. Let me close by saying this. I believe 
that when we begin to operate in the will that God has clearly spelled out for us, then he begins to answer the details that we so desperately have been trying to get him to tell us. I do. When we begin to step into areas and we say, God, I'm going to be faithful in just the things that I know that you've instructed me to do. I don't know what tomorrow looks like. I, Rodney and I got a little job. We got to go set up tomorrow, finish setting up for some concrete. I don't know what tomorrow looks like. But I know God's will for my life tomorrow. I can kneel down tonight and pray and pray and pray. I can pray all night long. God, reveal your will for me tomorrow. And the likelihood of him ever speaking anything but Micah 6, 6 through 8 is almost zero. But I can get up tomorrow and I can say, Lord, I don't know what this day looks like. I don't know what I'm going to encounter. I don't know whether there's going to be good or bad, whether I'm going to have benefit or, or blessing or if I'm going to have you know, despair and problems. But I know this is what you want from me, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before you. And so I'm going to gear myself when I wake up tomorrow morning. I'm going to take out your word, and I'm going to say, Lord, I'm humbly learning from you today. I'm going to regurgitate what pastor was preaching this morning and see if I can, if I can meditate on that. And I'm going to ask the Lord for his direction. I'm going to pray this prayer. God, help me to do justly today, to love mercy today, and to walk humbly with you. And I'm going to, I'm going to pray that tomorrow morning. I'm also going to pray another thing that I pray every morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That is God's will for me. That's what I'm saying. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is it. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your Savior. I can't tell you what else you might encounter. I can't tell you what you might experience this week. Jake, we don't know that we are going along and all of a sudden your whole world turns upside down. I don't know what the will of God and all of that is, but I know what the will of God for your daily life is. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And so I want to encourage you. I hope that you will think about this and that you will allow the Lord to just guide your feet. And I, and I really feel this word fresh to speak that some are asking, Lord, I don't know what your will is. I don't know what your will is. And I will say that I, I, I hear the voice of the Lord saying that he's going to answer that when we take care of the, of the will that we know he has for our life. Everybody say amen. Pastor, would you close us out?